Magnus Podcast, Episode 5, How Can Doctrine Change? with Father Bernard Blankenhorn. So the controversy surrounding the Amazon Synod, which you might be following, revolves around two seemingly divergent theological currents, that of Jesuit Karl Rahner and that of Blessed John Henry Newman, set to be canonized in October. In this episode of the Magnus Podcast, we're going to listen in on a live event hosted by our friends, the Veritas Young Adult Group, located in Sacramento. And we're honored to bring you this talk given by the renowned Dominican scholar, Father Bernard Blankenhorn. He's a professor of theology at the Angelicum in Rome and the author of The Mystery of Union with God, Dionysian Mysticism, and Albert the Great, and Thomas Aquinas. The title of his presentation, How Can Doctrine Change? For more information on the Albertus Magnus Institute, be sure to visit magnusinstitute.org. And a shout out to our friends in the Veritas Young Adult Group. If you are living in Northern California, uh, Catholic or not, young adult, and you want to connect with others your age and hear some great Catholic presentations every month in a really uh, impressive pub called the Monk's Cellar, you've you got to check it out. The calendar of events is at catholicveritas.com. That's Catholic, V-E-R-I-T-A-S.com. So this is a presentation we're going to hear that I think every Everybody should listen to at least twice. Uh, if you do end up appreciating this podcast, be sure to give us five stars, subscribe, and share it with your friends. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. And here is Father Bernard Blankenhorn's live presentation, How Can Doctrine Change? Thank you. Thank you, John. So just to begin, a simple prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us. Send us the Holy Spirit of your Son, Jesus Christ, to open our hearts and minds so that we might better understand our faith, to live it well, and to bring it to others with joy and zeal. And Father, we also turn to the mother of your Son and ask her intercession as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Dominic and Blessed John Henry Newman, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to sit for my talk. I'd prefer to stand, but I got to sit for the moment. And uh, just to begin, thank you, John, for that lovely introduction. It's not true that I'm renowned. I, I live with people that I think are famous, and I'm blessed to live with them um, because I get to learn from them every day. The format I'm going to use is this. Uh, can you hear me in the back? Yes, good. I'm going to give you my presentation of roughly 45 minutes. And I've got a cumulative argument where each part builds on the previous part. 
And for that reason, and for a few other reasons, I'm going to delay your questions until the end. Okay? So we'll have a Q&A session afterward, and we'll see how long we want to do that. It's up to you. But I'm just going to go straight through my talk. So if you raise your hand, I will not call upon you. <laughs> so I'm a Dominican, and um, Dominicans are, very, of course, very proud of their heritage. And we also like to imagine how good the order, how much better the order even could be. So for example, it seems that John Henry Newman, about whom I'll be speaking this evening, a great modern theologian, a 19th century English oratorian, it seems that Newman was very attracted to the Dominican ideal. And he speaks about this in some of his writings. The problem is, when Newman was becoming Catholic and also going and traveling to Italy to try to Catholicize himself because he was living in Anglican and secular England, Newman encountered the order in Italy in the age when the order was probably at its historic low because the French Revolution in the late 19th century had almost wiped out religious life in many parts of Europe. And so the Dominicans he ran into in the 1840s were maybe not the most edifying and so he speaks of this great ideal of the Dominicans, but also wonders if the order is still alive or if perhaps it's dead. But we can imagine, we Dominicans, that maybe he would have entered after all. There's even a story which I vaguely remember, and I might get some of the details wrong, but he was looking for Dominicans in one part of Italy, and the only ones he could find in that part were a couple of elderly gentlemen who were basically just spending their time producing rose-scented water and selling it so as to make a living. I'm also going to speak with you about uh, Karl Rahner, who was a German Jesuit, born in 1904, died in 1984. Rahner was a German academic, and therefore he was a workaholic. And Rahner was known for his, his Germanic discipline. Since I'm German, I can make fun of the Germans. You may not. Okay. And in Germanic discipline, you know, there's a time and a place for everything, and your, your day is rigidly, rigidly structured, especially if you're a first-class academic. Rahner, toward the end of his life, when he was already retired from teaching, was assigned to the Jesuit community in Munich. <clears throat> but he complained to his superiors and was soon reassigned to a different house. What was the problem? Sometimes, on certain days, once in a while, maybe when guests were coming for lunch, lunch ran overtime for about five or ten minutes. And this was unacceptable for a German academic. However, Rahner certainly had his <clears throat> more lovable side. He was also celebrated for, besides his rigidity, um, his openness to conversation with students about theology. So he would gather frequently at a, go to a cafe in Munich, and Munich is a beautiful city where you can enjoy great German coffee. It's much better than American coffee. And uh, he would basically just let people ask him anything about theology. See? He was resurrecting, in a way, this medieval tradition of the quadlibet disputed question. Quadlibet is Latin for anything. So there was a tradition in Advent and Lent, it was a penitential practice for the teacher, 
to make himself available in the presence of the entire faculty of the university where any student or professor could come and ask him any question in theology and he was expected to give an intelligent answer. 90% of academics today would never dare to do this. Never. So Rahner had this um, beautiful um, zeal to keep speaking about theology and he would do it in places like Munich before getting himself successfully getting himself reassigned down to Austria. So I've picked these two figures to talk about the topic of doctrinal change or development of doctrine. Why these two figures? Some of you might have read one or both. You might have heard of both of them at some point in your life. Why pick Newman and Rahner? Rahner is famous for being very dry in his writing. Why pick this really dry, German, stiff, rigid, Jesuit theologian? They have two very different approaches to development of doctrine. And I think that if we understand what Rahner thinks about development of doctrine, and if we see what Newman thinks about that topic, we'll have a much better idea of why we're having a very fierce debate. It's sort of a fight, really today in the church about doctrinal development. The issue of doctrinal change is crucial, as you surely know. It's become obvious in recent decades on themes like religious freedom or the salvation of the non-Christian. The church today doesn't exactly teach the same thing that she taught 100 or 500 years ago. So if these doctrines can change, what about other doctrines? What about marriage and family issues? What about the salvific value or non-value of Islam or Buddhism? Is there a line that cannot be crossed? And how do you know where that line is? You probably know that there is a line that cannot be crossed. But where is it? And how can you justify your claim that it's right here and not over there? And as we dive into this topic, we also should keep in mind that when, I, when, we, when we discuss doctrinal change, the term change is ambiguous. Why? Any time that the church declared a dogma that she hadn't clearly taught before, there was a doctrinal change. Example number one, the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 with the Nicene Creed. We didn't confess God, the Father, and Christ, the Eternal Son, in exactly the same way before the year 325. But we have ever since. The Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the first ecumenical council that formally declared the doctrine of transubstantiation, the Eucharist, the real presence, the substantial presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. It was a new doctrine that had been debated for a long time. So the burning question in our day is not so much does doctrine change and should it and how can it? The bigger question is, are some teachings being proposed today in direct contradiction with the past? What in the past do they contradict and does it matter? What are they contradicting and does it matter? 
how do I determine between legitimate and illegitimate doctrinal development? So on the surface, it's sort of an abstract question. You know, it's very philosophical. Lots of historical details enter into it. But as soon as you begin to apply it, you realize it has immense concrete practical effects. <clears throat> what I'm going to show you is that Rahner and Newman envision the nature of doctrinal development um, in a very different way. Before I get to Rahner, I'm going to make one more little point. Not every church teaching is a dogma, meaning not everything being taught today by popes, whether that's Francis or Benedict or John Paul II, not everything taught at Vatican II, not everything taught at previous councils before Vatican II was a definitive, irreversible truth claim. In fact, the documents of Vatican II are very clear in telling us that just about everything that they're saying is not a definitive teaching. But of course, there are lots of paragraphs and sentences in Vatican II where they are essentially just repeating the past doctrines, which are very often dogmas. Huh? So there's dogma all over the conciliar texts of Vatican II. There's dogma all over the encyclicals of John Paul II or other popes. But not everything they say is definitive teaching. This is interesting because what it means is, as a Catholic, you're not obliged to buy into Vatican II's ecumenical project and saying it has to continue today, nor do you have to affirm that John Paul II's theology of the body is the greatest thing since sliced bread was invented. Right? We have to keep that in mind. This always surprises some people, you know. I teach the basic introductory course of theology in Rome at the Angelicum, and uh, some students discover that not everything the Pope says sort of came from heaven in the form of a, of a direct inspiration, and this is, this is it, this is it. Okay, step number one. This is the shorter of the two sections. Karl Rahner. Newman will be more fun because he has so many fun historical examples, you'll see. Rahner's a bit dry, but he's still fascinating. Rahner was the most influential Catholic theologian of the 20th century. He was the giant. Nobody could compete with him. He was a theological advisor at Vatican II. He helped to write many of its documents, right? So Vatican II had, had hundreds of theological advisors and, of course, a couple of thousand bishops who were all entering into this debate. And ultimately, the bishops chose and decided, right? But there was a particular smaller group of theologians that included Karl Rahner that was extremely influential, not just because they were smart, but because they sat on the key commission that was drafting most of the key texts. Rahner was in that group. So was, oftentimes, the young Joseph Ratzinger. So Rahner was present at Vatican II. He left his mark on Vatican II and he dominated Catholic theological thought from the 1960s until the end of the 20th century. With Rahner, we'll see that doctrine is all about the expression of an experience of God. 
Now, this might be something that's sort of unusual to, our, to your ears, but you'll see where he's going with this. The claim that doctrine, church teaching, is ultimately an expression of the experience of God might surprise you. Because you might be asking yourself, but wait a minute. Isn't dogma a clarification of the meaning of scripture? Or a clarification, a, a better articulation, a more accessible articulation of some truth that is hidden in the treasury of tradition that's come down to us? Isn't that what dogma is about? For example, isn't the creed from Nicaea that we recite on Sundays at Mass ultimately articulating for us the teaching of the first part, the prologue, of the Gospel of John? But Rahner says no. Rahner thinks that the Bible is an expression of different people's experiences of God. The great thing about Jesus for Rahner is that he gave the best, the ultimate expression and articulation and concretization of the experience of God. He had the best experience of God, and he knew how to say it better than anybody else. I'll get to the meaning of experience in a second. So for Rahner, the words and deeds of Jesus and the words recounted in Scripture are all about transmitting some kind of experience of God. The neat thing about the New Testament is it gives us the experience of the first disciples. Why would Rahner make this move? Why would he think that this is the key to, to revelation, to scripture, to dogma? Why would he focus so much on the experience? An experience that he's convinced is available to you right now at every moment in your life, in fact. An experience that he thinks anyone can have at any time by a gift of God. What would motivate him to propose this very original doctrine? Well, somewhat original. It has some precedence. Why would he do this? Reduce the words of scripture, the words and the practices of tradition to different expressions of an, exp of an experience of God. Well, the first thing it does is it helps him to bypass hard objections coming from hypercritical biblical scholars, exegetes, who doubt the historicity of this or that part of the New Testament or other parts of the Bible. See? Because if in the New Testament the church is ultimately just seeking to express her experience of Jesus, then whether or not this or that part of the gospel is historical actually becomes secondary. Now, warning, or let's say a qualification in Rana's favor, Rahner isn't saying that every part of the gospel is just some kind of neat story that St. Matthew and his friends came up with through their personal, intimate experience of God or somebody's experience of Jesus when he lived on earth. Rahner isn't saying that. He's just moving in the direction where you can say, according to Rahner, in a good Christian way, that some of those passages aren't really necessarily about the historical Jesus. So you're able to make sense of the Christian faith in a culture that is, at least in parts of the culture, the ecclesial culture as well, that is saturated with hypercritical biblical scholarship. Rahner's project is a kind of apologetics. 
Rahner wants to help the Catholic be at home in the modern world and still be a good Catholic. That's his project. He wants to defend the faith. He wants to make the faith intelligible to modern man by using all sorts of new and different categories of thought. So, Rahner is interested in something else. Actually, I'll get to that in a second. What is it that can make this so digestible to modern man, this idea that there's an experience out there which everyone can have at any moment, and some people just expressed it really well, and they gave us the New Testament, the Old Testament, they gave us the Nicene Creed. Why go in this direction? If revelation is essentially an experience that anyone can have by a gift of God, but the gift is always there being offered, if it's an experience of God that anyone can have, then the non-Christian who has little or no chance of hearing the gospel, the Buddhist monk over in Thailand who basically never leaves his monastery grounds or never leaves his very Buddhist country, still has a great chance to encounter God, to come to know God, to love him, and therefore to be saved. It's a way of making the faith much more digestible to modern man. Because if God is essentially available and knowable through scripture and Christian tradition, then it seems like a whole portion of humanity has sort of been left out. They didn't get a chance. Think of the people who lived in the Western Hemisphere before Christopher Columbus. What about them? What about all the people in Asia who didn't hear the gospel until early modernity, and then often not until the 20th century? What about them? What about your agnostic and atheist friends? If your friend dies as an agnostic, can he still go to heaven? It's a big question. And Rahner thinks he has an answer. He thinks that the merciful God makes himself available to everyone, regardless of their religion. That doesn't mean he thinks that religions are equal. Okay, It's a different issue. Rahner proposes that there is a kind of interior, wordless, mysterious, personal experience in the very depths of our minds and hearts. This experience does not essentially include any particular concept or idea. It's a wordless, concept-free, meta-conceptual experience. The best analogy I can come up with is if you think of some of the saints and the great mystics and their writings, and when they try to express to you the most intimate encounter with God that they have received, that they have gone through, they will often, often stammer and be lacking in words. They can barely describe it. Because it's so interior, it's so intimate, and it seems to just break through the limits of human language and human <laughs> concepts and ideas. Rahner thinks that this experience is constantly available to us, even when we're not paying attention. I'll give you a simple example. You spend a beautiful evening with a friend. You have a lovely dinner, maybe tonight or a different evening. Maybe it's just you and one person. Uh, a longtime friend, and uh, the food is great. You know, good beer, good wine. You talk about the meaning of life. You know, it's a person with whom you can, you can share quite a bit, that knows you really well, and that you trust and respect greatly, that you love. And then you go home, and you're really happy. But inside of you, 
you're happy, you're content, you're kind of satisfied, but inside of you there's a longing for more. You wish you could have more. Maybe an even better friendship, maybe for this friendship to grow. Or maybe if you're still single, right, it might trigger in you a longing for an intimate friendship that you can have through marriage if you could find the right spouse. This longing for more, this reaching of the heart that's spontaneous, that just happens on its own, that's looking for something sort of endless. You know, think of, say, this human spontaneous desire to live forever, right? Runner says, aha, that's an experience of God. Why? You're reaching out for the infinite. And who's the infinite? It's God. The atheist doesn't know it. The atheist doesn't know that there is an infinite, but he actually wants it. And if he wants it, in some ways, he knows it. And if he knows the infinite, in some ways, he knows God. So Rahner would point to very simple everyday experiences to illustrate what he means by the experience of God. And as you've picked up, probably, this is where he locates the heart of revelation. It's not the words and deeds of Jesus. It's the interior experience of Jesus in his humanity. It's the interior experience of the evangelists, of the apostles, of the first disciples, and of everybody else who lived after and before. Rahner was a good Jesuit, and so he was interested in finding Jesus in everyday life. It's what Jesuits do with Ignatian spirituality. We Dominicans will never understand Ignatian spirituality. <laughs> It's this weird 16th century thing. It's kind of new. Yeah. I was once at a, I was once at a congress for medieval um, academics, you know, historians and philosophers and such, and theologians, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. They call it the zoo, you know. It is a zoo. Um, and uh, I was walking around in my habit, and uh, people gave me strange looks, you know, all these medievalists who supposedly know something about medieval culture. And I wanted to say to them, I'm the only one here who's actually medieval. <laughs> so Rahner thinks he's accounted for how the Buddhist monk, who is, as you know, an atheist, right? Buddhism doesn't have a god. Buddhism has temporary gods who eventually cease to exist. Rahner thinks that the Buddhist monk can, on a regular basis, experience God and therefore have a chance to be in communion with God. And so Rahner can explain how the non-Christian is saved. The problem is that the Buddhist articulates his experience of the infinite differently from the way we do, but it's ultimately the same experience, if that monk is paying attention. He still thinks he's an atheist, but he's not. Okay, that was step one on Rahner's theology. Now comes step two. Rahner emphasizes that the church's experience of God changes over time. Because he thinks that man inevitably will constantly reach for our finite, often culturally bound, historically bound ideas, concepts, words, etc. Our experience of God can change over time. So Rahner points out that the ancient Christians 
when they wanted to talk about the Trinity, the eternity of God the Son, right? Nicaea, back to Nicaea. He thinks that when they did this, they, of course, as everybody knows, turned to Greek philosophy. We say it every day, every Sunday, consubstantial with the Father, right? What in the world does consubstantial mean? Well, it's a Christian adaptation of the idea of substance. God is a substance. He's a particular kind of being. That's Greek philosophy. Changed, modified, adapted by Christian theologians. Or again, God is three persons. Where did that come from? It basically came from the Greeks with lots of modifications added by the faithful. Greek philosophy is how the 4th century Christians who gave us the Nicene Creed articulated the experience of God. They had an experience of communion with God, of Jesus saving, and to say this, they turned to Greek philosophy, and now they concretize for you, they express for you, this experience of meeting God through Jesus, of being saved in the name of Jesus, celebrated in the liturgy, etc. But, says Rahner, but, 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 those Greek ideas belong to the ancient world. And today, philosophy is very different. Lots of philosophers in our century, in the last two or three centuries, have criticized, have critiqued ancient Greek philosophy, which also means they critique the philosophy that's been used for close to 2,000 years in so much of Catholic dogma, including the Nicene Creed. Rahner says, as the culture changes, so the ways in which we conceptualize and articulate our experience of God must change. And so, 21st century Americans will produce new categories to articulate human love and other things in life. Natives in the Amazonian rainforest down in Brazil and Colombia and other countries of Latin America will articulate their experience of God very differently from the way you and I do by talking about a way of communing with nature, with Mother Earth, etc. And because, because, you see, the American today, even your fallen away buddy, okay, because he or she is still experiencing God without probably realizing it, because the people in the Amazon have been experiencing God for millennia, not just since their baptism, they can teach us about God, <coughs> says Rahner, says the disciple of Rahner. Right? Rahner didn't see the Amazonian synod that's coming up. He didn't think about the Amazonian people a whole lot, but this is where Rahner is sort of applied. huh? In Rahnerian language, the Amazonian pagan religions contain many expressions of this mysterious, personal, intimate, wordless contact with God. And so those religions are a source of truth for you and me. For Rahner, every culture is a potential site of divine revelation because every culture bears a trace of the experience of God. What's so special about the New Testament if that's the case? What's so special about the Bible? One thing. It's the best most authentic expression of the experience of God, and so it's a guide. But that doesn't mean that the Bible says everything. There's more to be said.
because God is infinite. Rahner explicitly maintains that Catholic doctrine is always a kind of combination of a true authentic experience of God and some time-bound concept. In each age, the church expresses her experience in the only way possible during that time period. And so the only way to express Jesus' saving work in the fourth century, the only way that was adequate at the time, was to say, well, he's consubstantial with the Father. He's doing divine stuff. He's saving me. Therefore, he's consubstantial. Because substance is what I learned in school. <coughs> According to Rahner, if modern philosophy deconstructs the older conceptual categories, if it deconstructs Greek philosophy, then we need to look for new conceptual categories to talk about the Trinity, Christ, grace, the church, the sacraments, etc. He says, he says this explicitly, I can show you the article, the language of the Nicene Creed was true in the 4th century, but the basic idea expressed therein has to be said differently today in order to remain true. So one thing Rahner was famous for was to compose uh, put, um, potentially new, potential new creeds, new sort of creedal summaries of the faith. They were very simple, huh? that he thought would be good for the church to adopt in very modern, accessible language. Right? So, Rahner accepts the idea that today's Catholic dogma can contradict yesterday's Catholic dogma. Specifically, the contradiction can happen at the level of the precise concepts and the particular words that we're using to speak about some aspect of the faith. So for Rahner, doctrinal conflict is not a problem. It's an inescapable fact of life. Just accept it, get used to it. That's how human knowing works. That's how culture works. It's who you are. It's not a bad thing. The conflict results from the nature of history, from the limits of human cultures. What's crucial, says Rahner, if we want to preach the faith and defend the faith today, is to say it in ways accessible to modern man. Now, I've alluded to the upcoming synod on the Amazonian peoples, and I've alluded to the working document that some of the members of the Vatican Commission preparing the synod have put out. This document, you might have heard about it in media, you might have seen video news reports, you might have read part of the document itself, it's on the internet, you can get a PDF easily. What this document does, this will be the guide for the hundreds of bishops and also other experts who gather shortly in the, the Vatican to, to discuss evangelization in this part of Latin America. The document put out by these unnamed authors, it's a committee, so it's natural that the names of the individuals will not be published in the document itself. The, the document presents the native cultures of the Amazon as bearing the voice of God in a unique way. They give us special access to truth about God, says the document. For example, it's going to teach Western man a new thinking about our relationship with nature, with creation, a different way to commune with nature. 
I think that the document for the Amazon Synod makes perfect sense once you explore the theology of Rahner. Today, driving over in the car with my, my confers, I was peeking at parts of the document again, and I could pick out specific paragraphs where it, it could have been written by Rahner, one of his first disciples. Huh? It's there. Rahner was the most influential theologian of the 20th century. I'm going to close the section on Rahner by asking some questions about his ideas, and I'll come back to it a little bit later as well. <coughs> a question for Rahner. If the expression of our experience of God keeps changing, how can we know that we are in fact experiencing the same God that our ancestors in the faith experienced? How do you know it's the same God? Another question. If the Nicene Creed is partly erroneous when it uses the concept of consubstantiality, how do we know that we have the same belief as those fourth century Christians and all the ones thereafter who kept confessing and affirming the Nicene Creed, including the very idea of consubstantiality. How can we tell whether a new articulation of the faith is authentic or not? And also, what is this nebulous experience anyway? Is this some kind of a trick? You have a wordless, concept-free experience of God accessible to you at every moment. Oh, tell me about that. Well, it's hard to express because it's meta-conceptual and meta-linguistic. But can you try to explain it to me? I can, but it's such a poor explanation because it's really beyond words. So what is it? Well, I can't really say, but it's sort of this. What is this experience anyway? Could it be that Rahner, a pious Catholic, projected his prayer life and the prayer life of many practicing Catholics onto the non-believer? That the experience that Rahner is having perhaps frequently and others as well, others who believe, is an experience that's available to them because they have faith in the gospel. My last question for Rahner, and this is hardly original, huh? One of his former students actually posed this nasty question. Rahner has this very optimistic view of life, huh? Even Hitler had access to that experience of God all the time. Rahner, if that's the case, then why is the world such a mess? What about the injustice? What, what about oppression? What about the reality of sin? Rahner, is anyone, anyone actually in a state of mortal sin? Is it possible for anybody to go to hell? Rahner doesn't necessarily give a clear answer to that, but he points in a particular direction of an answer to those questions. So I've done Rahner with you. You've survived the abstract, sophisticated, <coughs> truly sophisticated, I'm not being sarcastic, German theology, a Dominican who presented a Jesuit. And I didn't tell you any of my Jesuit jokes. <laughs> you have no idea what a great temptation this is. 
there are many Jesuit jokes circulating in the Dominican order. And they're funny because they're all true. <laughs> I know they're true because I know Jesuits and I've read them. Now they have their, their jokes about us as well. It's only fair. Are they here? No, <laughs> not at all. Okay, so I've been talking to you about Rahner, especially the things he articulates in his writings between the 1960s and 1970s, okay? Rahner also had a trajectory in his, in his own theological um, process and development, okay? If we dial the, the clock of history back one century, we get a very, very, very different figure in the person of Cardinal Newman. He's about to be canonized by Pope Francis. Now, when I say, blessed John Henry Newman, soon to be Saint John Henry Newman, listen to him. When I talk about Newman, the saint, I am not pulling out his status in sanctity, the fact that he's going to be canonized, as a kind of trump card to smash the Jesuit theologian who must be wrong because a Dominican is talking. <laughs> right? This is not my intention. Why? because the saints sometimes disagree with each other on really important ideas and topics. And we've known this for a very long time. It's not kind of some kind of secret of the specialists. It's not some kind of conspiracy to bring down the church by showing that the saints contradict each other. Example, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure fiercely disagreed on all sorts of things. They're both saints. They're both doctors of the church. They're not infallible. Just because a saint said it doesn't mean it's true. Kind of like just because the Pope said it doesn't mean it's true. See, the, the Jesuits and the Dominicans are different this way. See, I have to, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. It's a description, okay? The classical Jesuit way is, you know, if the Pope says the wall is red, it's red. The Dominican says, well, well, no, I mean, the Pope's wrong. You know, it's beige, you know. <laughs> and there are Jesuit saints who spoke this way. Saintly confessors helping St. Teresa of Avila spoke this way. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. It's okay. The church is still here. Newman is a fascinating mixture of new and old, new and old, nova et vetera. Consider the following. <clears throat> he was an expert on the theology of the ancient church. He knew all about Arianism and Nicaea and St. Athanasius. But he also developed original insights on how people come to faith today with their modern problems and consciousness. <clears throat> Pope Paul VI called Vatican II Newman's Council. Vatican II was Newman's Council, said Paul VI. So today, I'm talking to you about two giants of Vatican II. It's just that one of them was already dead, see? And the other one was there helping out. 
Rahner was steeped in Catholic tradition, and so was Newman, but very differently. You probably know that he's an, a convert from Anglicanism. <clears throat> Newman came into the Catholic Church in the 1840s, so it's just before Pope Pius IX declares the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Newman wrote his book on the development of doctrine partly to defend the Catholic Church against a typical Anglican critique. The Catholics are inventing new dogmas. These are human ideas. Those Marian dogmas and practices, these are human ideas. They're not in the Bible. They're not in tradition. Newman wants to show that Catholic faith is sensible, historically speaking. It's one of his projects. <clears throat> the first important point I want to make about Newman concerns his understanding of the nature of revelation. Newman sees scripture as the transmission of the testimony that's given by the apostles and the first disciples, a testimony about the words and deeds of Jesus. Notice we've just switched categories, haven't we? It's no longer an experience of God, a direct experience or an experience through Jesus. It's witnessing to what Jesus said and did, which of course might go together with an experience of God. But that's kind of almost secondary for Newman. <clears throat> Newman assumes that the Bible contains divinely inspired words that give us access to the historical Jesus. <clears throat> Newman has no category for some kind of wordless, concept-free, mysterious experience of God. Newman is not interested in ongoing revelation. Newman says there's a definitive revelation in Christ and the only way, the only way you can access it is scripture and tradition. So we're going to look at a, a theology that's very different from Rahner. <clears throat> so that was my first point on Newman, the second point. <clears throat> Newman thinks that re revelation is so rich, it is so uh, dense and rich that it takes the church centuries, millennia, to unpack everything that's there. See? The Bible is like a treasure chest. You can just keep digging and keep finding more and more. The same with tradition, such as the liturgies we've been celebrating for two millennia. So, the early Christians had an intuitive sense that it's correct and good and important to venerate the Blessed Virgin Mary to venerate Mary. And soon, Christians began to reflect on why they honor Mary as they do. And when they reflected, pretty soon, the doctrine of Mary <clears throat> as mother of God emerged in the fifth century. For Newman, the prayer, the contemplation of the church, the reflection of her theologians, of her contemplatives, <clears throat> of her holy men and women, gives you a kind of magnifying glass, and with it, you can read the fine print of Scripture more easily, see? You need all that time and prayer 
and reflection to read it. And this brings me to the most important part of Newman's theology, namely his seven notes on doctrinal development. <clears throat> seven ways to begin to figure out what idea that's being proposed today as a church doctrine should be accepted or rejected. Now, I'm not going to cover all seven notes. First, because you want to go home before midnight. And second, because I'm losing my voice. Now, Newman doesn't give us a complete list. He doesn't say, follow steps A, B, and C, and you will figure it out. It's an incomplete list. He's humble. But he gives us really valuable resources. And the neat thing about Newman is that, you know, he's an Oxford don. He's one of those fancy Oxford academics, right? <clears throat> As a man with a profound Anglican historical Christian culture, Newman was soaked in the texts of the ancient church and the ancient saints. He knew them thoroughly. And so he could describe patterns of how church life grew and developed. It's not a theory he comes up with so much as a description of how he sees the church's life progressing, especially with a focus on the ancient church. So I'm going to give you just a selection of his seven notes. I'll cover about four of them, and then I'll give you a conclusion. The first note, the first criterion for doctrinal development in Newman is called the preservation of type. The preservation of type. <clears throat> this involves an ability to grasp the heart, the heart of a doctrine or an institution, an institution like the way to celebrate liturgy. To see the heart of it, the core idea, the core teaching, without the varying appearances that might come and go, some of the externals that might be secondary. So for Newman, the church's teaching and practice have a very strong continuity with the past. What does a type look like? The preservation of type, he says. Make sure you preserve the type. What does a type look like? Two examples. First, Newman mentions the negative reaction that the Catholic Church elicit, elicits in every age. She's always been critiqued for being superstitious or fanatical. You Catholics are fanatics. You're crazy. Oh, good. Good. She always elicits the same kind of sympathy or hatred. Second, true Christianity refuses to obey the state, the government, on some things. We've kind of always done that. So, when we ponder hotly debated ideas in the church today, <clears throat> the continuity of type can be really useful. It can function like this. We can ask if a proposed doctrine would increase or diminish the kind of negative reaction that the church elicits from the world. Will it make us more popular or less popular? popular? Newman says, don't try to be popular. 
Again, it's not a personal hypothesis. It's the pattern of the history of the church. You can see it there if you study it as Newman did. So that's the first of the seven notes. The second note, the continuity of principles. Newman distinguishes between principles of dogma and doctrines. And some of the doctrines are, in fact, dogmas. So this language gets very confusing quickly. The principles, you know, the, the foundation, the basis for dogma, the principles of dogma, as opposed to the dogma itself. See, the, the dogma grows, right? The Nicene Creed, the Nicene Constantinople Creed, transubstantiation, etc. The dogma grows. The, the principles of dogma, the foundation, the bedrock, they don't grow. They don't change. What are these things anyway? An example, the principle of faith. By faith, by the principle of faith, what Newman means is this. As a Christian, I accept God's word and all of it, as I find it in scripture and tradition. I accept all of it, even if there are parts that I cannot prove to you by reason alone. <coughs> There are things we believe, dogmatically, which we can never prove by reason alone. I cannot prove to you, historically, that Jesus rose from the dead. I can prove to you pretty well that he died. I mean, even the pagan Romans talked about that. I can't prove to you that he rose again. It's sensible to hold that he rose again. And I believe the testimony of the first disciples who recounted his rising again and the way they recount it is quite compelling. But ultimately, it's faith. It's faith. It's not because I'm smart or special. It's faith. Another principle of dogma, the sacramental principle. What does that mean, the sacramental principle? It says, through the incarnation, heaven and earth are united. Heaven and earth come together. In other words, Material reality becomes a means to know and commune with God. So, by touching the Eucharist, which has the appearances and the accidents of bread, I touch Jesus himself, and by touching Jesus, I touch God, the sacramental principle. Doctrinal corruptions and errors violate one or more of the dogmatic principles, very often. Perhaps not always, but very, very often. A good development in doctrine, a sound proposal, respects all the principles of dogma that Newman articulates. So that's the second note. We have two to go. The fun ones are coming. I've covered what you might call two conservative, conservative in quotation marks, notes of doctrinal development. The conservatives, whoever they are and whatever that means, among us are happy right now. They preserve the past. Newman can also sound sort of liberal. Thank you. When he, he explains, when he explains how doctrine 
does legitimately change. Sometimes he kind of sort of sounds like what they say is liberal, whoever they are, right? Whoever they are. There's a great Gary Larson uh, cartoon that explains who they are. Do you know this one? It's great. I love it. it, it, it I, I, I saw it from my Heidegger professor because it explains Heideggerian uh, philosophy really well. So there's a guy in a wife beater shirt. Do you know what a wife, wife beater shirt is? Okay. And he's in a cabin in a garden, like his backyard. And there's a bunch of phones around. And now before you were born, there was a thing called a rotary telephone. And it had, a, it had a label on it that would give like the phone number that belongs to that phone. See, you, you only use cell phones. It's all you've ever known, so you don't know what this is, right? But I'm older than you, so I know what it is. So the, the phone number is on the rotary phone. It's this, it's this clunky thing with this, this circle on it, you know, and you dial it. You know, I'll show it to you one day. And sometimes the name of the person to whom the phone belongs is also there, see, with their phone number. So Harry is in a wife-beater shirt in this dark little hut in his backyard, and there's a whole bunch of phones around him, and he's talking on all of them, and they all have the label, they. <laughs> and his wife catches him by surprise. She didn't know he was in there. And she looks in, and she looks at him and says, Harry, so you're the they and the they say. Philosophers love that uh, cartoon by Gary Larson, okay? So they say that this is liberal, whoever they are, you know? Okay, here's your liberal note of doctrinal development. It's called, this one will be really fun, I love this one, the power of assimilation, the power of assimilation, not asylum, assimilation. It's a sign of the church's spiritual vitality that she can and does integrate various philosophical ideas and rituals from non-Christian cultures into her own thinking and practice. She assimilates without compromising her own core convictions and essential practices. The church has an uncanny ability to figure out, to sniff out with the doctrinal, the theological nose. There is such a thing, by the way. The saints usually have it. Okay? The church has the ability to sniff out the partial truth present in pre-Christian and non-Christian cultures, their ideas, their practices. Example, St. Gregory the Miracle Worker, you've probably never heard of him, third century. I think he was mission, missionary in, in Armenia, but I'm not sure, okay? Gregory, the miracle worker, was evangelizing a pagan people who were polytheists, worshiping multiple gods. What did he do? He took their pagan feasts in honor of the gods, plural, and changed them into feasts honoring the holy martyrs. <coughs> Instead of eating, singing, dancing, drinking, in honor of many gods, people did so in honor of the martyrs. What's he doing? He's rehabituating them to honor multiple spiritual beings that are really powerful. For example, they can intercede for you, but they're not, they're not gods anymore. They're saints. They're human beings who have passed on and they're in heaven. 
So he keeps this one aspect of pagan culture, honoring multiple spiritual beings, which is different from worshiping, right? Honoring and worshiping are not the same thing. And now the honor is redirected to show the glory of the one true God because his glory is manifest in the lives of those martyrs and in their death. That was one example. Newman gives a list of pagan elements that were integrated into ancient Christian worship to illustrate what he means by this third note, the power of assimilation. I love this list. Here's what Newman, no, here's what the ancient church picked up from the pagans. The use of lamps and incense in liturgy. The use of holy water. Liturgical processions. Priestly vestments. The wedding ring. Turning to the east in prayer. You people who go to the Trinitine Rite, pay attention. <laughs> when you turn to the east in prayer, you are enacting a, an ancient pagan custom. The use of holy images. The Old Testament forbids, forbids making images of God. Christianity goes gangbusters with it. We even had a, we had a crisis called the iconoclastic crisis, right? Where many priests and bishops supported by the emperor were smashing, literally smashing icons, which is why we have almost, almost no icon from before the 6th or 7th century. See? They were all smashed to pieces by the ancient version of Puritanism. The church got over it. In fact, the Pope and the saints were never in favor. Are you surprised by the list? Are you surprised that there's a, a dirty little pagan practice of turning to the east in prayer or wearing a wedding ring? Notice that each of these elements remains compatible with the worship of the one true God. You know, there's nothing intrinsically polytheistic about incense. We... That was not a joke, actually. So, right? We didn't start worshiping multiple gods because by this assimilation of these various practices of the pagans. Newman would be very, very, very unhappy with the idea of worshiping the spirits of nature or communing with Mother Earth as some kind of spiritual being, Mother Earth, he'd be very unhappy with the idea of Christians wanting to do that. Why? The opposite of assimilation would be absorption into a non-Christian culture, being absorbed by a non-Christian way of thinking. Instead of shedding the light of the gospel on the world and finding the little rays and fragments of of truth that are present out there because it's the creator God who gave us this world and who made himself knowable in some ways as the creator. Romans chapter 1 teaches us that, right? So these little fragments of truth lying around these different cultures. And so we can begin to assimilate some things, but it's the opposite of being absorbed by a non-Christian culture. Newman's third note of development includes the insistence that assimilation of outside ideas, like consubstantiality or substance, 
outside practices, like the wedding ring and priestly vestments and processions, be neither arbitrary nor that they be done for political motives, nor be a matter of compromise. It's a matter of discerning the truth that's hidden in some problematic, but not completely problematic, culture. So that was the third note. The fourth note is called logical sequence. Actually, I'm going to skip it. I'm going to go to the sixth note. I promised you four notes. I'm going to go to the sixth note, which is called Conservative action on the past. Ooh, the conservatives are happy now. <coughs> conservative action on the past. The sixth of the seven notes. It means that a later stage of development has a richer content of meaning than an origin earlier, perhaps original stage in the development of a doctrine. It also means that an emerging doctrine, a newly proposed doctrine that is accepted, and its accompanying spiritual practices need to support and strengthen one's faith in the older doctrines. That the newer doctrines with their practices help us to cling as well to the existing, the ancient and medieval and early modern doctrines that we have accepted. Newman gives the example of growth in Marian doctrine and piety. In the ancient church, and I think today, the more Mary was honored, the more her son was honored and, in fact, worshipped. Right? We don't worship Mary. We honor her. The more the graces of Mary became evident, the more the saving work of Christ could shine forth. And so devotion to Christ was enriched by growth in Marian teaching and piety. Growth in Marian teaching and piety reinforced a traditional doctrine concerning Christ's true divinity and humanity. So Newman points out, this is a polemical point, but you know, that's theology. Real theology is polemical. Newman points out that over time, the Christian communities that, that departed from Marian piety also ultimately lost their faith in Jesus' Jesus's true divinity. I'll give you an example. Eh? The most fervent believer among the Lutherans that I know is a Lutheran theologian who has a Marian devotion. He wants to sing the Magnificat and Benedictus for morning and evening prayer to honor Mary. And he's a good Lutheran. Strange, huh? Most of his Lutheran friends and colleagues and con you know, members of his Lutheran community don't see it this way. He has absolutely no problem confessing the true humanity and divinity of Christ. Or take a different community, the Unitarians. No reverence for Mary less and less belief in Christ's true divinity, and hence they ended up rejecting the Trinity. That's why they're called Unitarians. Now, Newman is giving us a general trend in history, right? That doesn't mean that everybody who's really, really pious in their Marian uh, spirituality is going to be 
just on the right track when it comes to their Christian faith and belief in Christ, right? There are superstitions that can come up. You can see it in some cultures out there today. But it's a general trend in history, right? So that's conservative action on the past. That was the last note of Newman I'm talking about. And I'm moving into my conclusion. Uh, John, how much time should I take? Can I still have? Where's John? Over there. It's okay. <laughs> Earlier, I noted some problems with Rahner's approach. For example, his inability to show the continuity of our faith with the faith of our ancestors. It doesn't mean that Rahner thinks that we have a completely different faith from our, our ancestors, right? I'm saying, Rahner, show me how it is. Why? It's the same faith. You say it is. Great. Why? Why is your new creed better than the old one and still has continuity with the faith of the 4th and 5th and 16th century saints? I think that Rahner ultimately cannot explain how we might judge the authenticity and reliability of diverse and, yes, competing expressions of the experience of God. The permanent element of this experience of God remains metalinguistic and metaconceptual, which is why, precisely why, Rahner has no clear way to distinguish between right expressions and expressions that are false. With good Catholic intuitions and Catholic piety, Rahner was able to say, the New Testament is the, the, the definitive expression of the experience of God. But what if I follow through on the logic of his system? Without his piety, where does it go? Which of today's beliefs are partly false anyway and which are true? Because he's saying that many, many beliefs from the past were expressed in partly erroneous ways. And the answer with Rahner is, we cannot know right now which of the beliefs that we're articulating today as dogma are in fact perfectly true and which are not. Rahner, following the logic of his system, not where he wants to go, but following the logic of his system, cannot point to any part of the Christian tradition and say, yes, that's a unique and permanent aspect of the treasure of tradition. We will always have it with us because we can always say it differently. It's not what Rahner intended. I think that Newman is on the right track. He doesn't give us a complete answer to the question of how to figure out what is a good doctrinal development and what is not, but he gives us many valuable insights. Why? Because Newman allows us to maintain a firm communion of faith and love with all the saints who have gone before us. So where do we go from here? As a conclusion, using Newman, Newman, I will make three brief points. The first point is this. The first Newmanian, that is a word, Newmanian point. In our discernment of true and false doctrinal development, the object of study, the object of consideration, 
includes various ideas, teachings, that have not been definitively or dogmatically taught by the church. There is one category of teachings where debate about the truth of the matter is perfectly legitimate, the non-definitive teachings. And there's another category where such debate only leads to rupture with the faith, the faith of our ancestors. And so when we seek to use sound criteria for doctrinal, doctrinal development to judge newly suggested additions to the church's teaching, to see, we need to see whether controversial non-definitive teachings being proposed by councils or popes or theologians, pastors, and other voices are acceptable. The Nicene Creed is here to stay. The Son of God is still consubstantial with the Father. Modern philosophy struggles to explain substance and has competing notions of substance. That's okay. By the way, the Greeks also had competing notions of substance. And many 4th and 5th and 6th century Christian theologians had somewhat competing ideas of what substance is, but they could agree on a core teaching as well. So what does that mean? It means this. If the Council of Trent teaches as dogma the indissolubility of sacramental marriage, and if, in fact, Trent is giving us a dogma that is firmly rooted in the teaching of scripture and of tradition, then, in fact, marriage simply is indissoluble. And by the way, Trent, in fact, does exactly this. Why? Listen to the prophet Malachi. Thus says the Lord, I hate divorce. <laughs> he doesn't say, I hate the divorcee. He doesn't say, I hate divorced people. He can't stand divorce. So that's the first point. Distinguish well between the definitive and the non-definitive things. There are lots and lots of non-definitive teachings in the Catholic Church. There are things that various popes say with which I don't fully agree, and I'm still a good Catholic. I'm Orthodox. That's why they let me teach at the Pontifical University. <laughs> it's not because I'm famous, because I'm not. It's because I'm Orthodox. This always shocks some students, you know. You disagree on the Pope on that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so do hundreds and hundreds of priests and dozens of bishops and lots and lots and thousands of, of simple Catholic lay people. They also disagree on the same stuff. It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. We've been here before. You know, read history. We've been here before. The second point of my last three points here. Newman helps us to see that the church does not stand still in the flow of history. Oh, good. A liberal point, say some people in the room. Whatever liberal means. Newman recognized that the church continually developed its doctrine and practice, assimilating wholesome ideas and practices from the world. So we might think of the new ecumenism the new way of interacting with 
uh, Protestant believers. We might think of this new way of having friendly, friendly relations with Protestants, right? We don't longer say, well, it's a bunch of heretics, bunch of heretics, right? We don't say that. Our new and friendly relations with Protestants have actually made it easier to converse with them. And so they begin to discover better the real riches of their tradition, and I get to figure out better the great things about the Catholic tradition. And by the way, having these nice, friendly relations with Protestants makes it much easier to help them convert to Catholicism as well. And then there are aspects of Catholic life that are, in fact, positively enriched by the Protestant experience. For example, if you go to countries where the Catholic Church has been strong in history, but where the Protestant present has been minimal, you'll notice less of an evangelical zeal and less devotion to scripture than you would typically notice among practicing Catholics in America. Why is that? It's not because we're American. <laughs> There's a dynamism in American Catholicism that's partly due to its ecumenism. And the church is not going to stand still. And we're still absorbing some practices of Protestants. Think of the phenomena dominant among the Pentecostal Christian communities, speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecy. Practices that actually resemble things that were going on, clearly going on in the first two or three centuries of the church and probably thereafter as well. Uh, we're still assimilating. We're still trying to figure out exactly what to do with it, but we're assimilating it. So, so we have Catholic charismatics, right? Not every charismatic speaks in tongues, by the way. Most charismatics that I know don't speak in tongues. No, that's not true. The minority of charismatics I know don't speak in tongues, but they're still charismatics. So that was my second point, huh? My second concluding point. The church is not standing still. The third point goes back to Newman's insistence that doctrinal development involves unpacking the richness of a revelation already given to us through Israel and in Christ. Huh? He has a, you might call it sort of, wholesome, good old-fashioned Catholicism, you know? Doctrinal development means unpacking what? This is the wholesome part of seeing Catholic, the wholesome Catholicism. Revelation is definitively given to us in, through Israel and in Christ. We're just trying to figure out exactly all that's in there, in that little treasure box. The church's teachings are ultimately a clarification of what is in Revelation. And it's an instruction on which ideas and practices contradict revelation, right? There's either one God or three. It's one, of the two, it's one or the other. It can't be both. Development happens because with the experience of the saints, the experience of the saints over the centuries, we see more clearly what God teaches us as we reflect upon and live the gospel. But see, the object the object of development is the church's understanding of the content of revelation. What does that mean? It means that the church's, the, the magisterium's job, the essential function of the teaching office in the church, the pope and the bishops, whether meeting in council or not, 
their, bain, their basic job is to stand in service of revelation. Their job is not to produce new ideas. Now, theologians can produce new ideas. Contemplatives can come up with new ideas and then test them. That's their job. Maybe it's your job. It's not the bishop's job. It's not the pope's job. It's not the job of an ecumenical council. They can't ignore scripture and tradition. What does that mean? It means that we, all of us, lay or priest, religious or not, can hold the bishops and the popes, popes plural, accountable for what they teach. We hold them accountable to scripture and tradition. By the way, neither Pope Benedict nor Pope Francis ever taught something infallibly that was not taught before, which is precisely what happens with about 99% of the popes in history. It's normal. They repeat lots and lots of dogmas that have been defined before by someone else. Vatican II does the same thing. That's exactly what happens. Hardly any pope speaks infallibly in a new way. And so Pope Francis's statement on the death penalty is still being debated, and rightly so. We study scripture, we study history and theology, and then we can apply sound criteria to these questions. So this evening, I've given you, I have not given you a satisfying answer on whether Vatican II was right on how and if non-Christians can be saved. I haven't explained to you which ecological theology is wholesome and which is not. I've given you a few tools to reflect well on these issues. It's important because blind, blind, unthinking obedience to church authority or theological experts is a vice. As Catholics, we never ever leave our brains at the door. And that's all I've got. enjoyed this presentation for more visit magnusinstitute.org that's m-a-g-n-u-s institute.org copyright 2019 the albertus magnus institute incorporated a 501c3 organization